Our Father, we uh, love you and thank you that the day of salvation has already arrived. Uh, the, the shocking thing was that Jesus could declare what would be revealed on Judgment Day, and he delighted in telling people they were forgiven ahead of time. So help us to enter into that. The salvation that was longed for has arrived, and, and we are the recipients of it. So help us to enter into that more deeply. Lead us, Lord. This is your text. This is your Bible. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, there's the text. Paul had, makes a statement. Do not be unequally yoked. All right, so the, the command, this is a command uh, from Scripture. It's not a suggestion. Uh, I think many, many of you, perhaps most of you, have heard of this and know about this or have been taught by a faithful church growing up about this. Now, Christians are to marry Christians. Now, I want to say right up front, that doesn't mean that that is a magic fix for marriage. Uh, but it does certainly get a marriage off on the right foot and the proper foot. Uh, but not a magic fix. Uh, Christian marriages need a savior. Uh, even a perfect marriage, supposed per- perfect marriage, needs a savior, needs a redeemer. And uh, it's uh, perfectly, uh, almost, I wouldn't, I don't know if you'd call it normal, but to have Christians who need counseling uh, in their marriage certainly doesn't surprise this doesn't surprise me. But Paul says very clearly, do not be unequally yoked. And there's a prohibition in, in your Bibles. Now, we learn a little bit about Paul's preaching style, I think. Uh, some have commented that this is, if you wanted to hear Paul preach, this is kind of what it was like. A statement, and then rhetorical questions, scriptural backing, usually Old Testament, and then some encouragement and some hope. I think that's. I think we're on to something. Um, now, this is a section that ends in chapter seven, verse one. Now, our chapter divisions came much later; they're not in the original. So, we want to be careful when we read our Bibles to not just say, "Well, the end of the thought is in chapter six. Now, it keeps going in chapter seven, and so it's about holiness. It's about holiness in marriage. And, uh, and so there's a, a beautiful summary of what he says in verse 1, and we'll get to that. Now, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that this unequally yoked is talking about marriage, and some scholars have sort of, some, a very small group, uh, have tried to suggest, well, this might be about business partnerships or that kind of thing. But Paul really is clear when he gets into his third third rhetorical question, um, you know, what do, what do believers have in common with unbelievers, right? And so um, uh, he, he's pretty, I, not to say he's pretty clear, he is talking about marriage, right? So um, what portion of the language in the English, uh, English standard, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And so he makes this imagery of, of, of animals, uh, a picture from a farmer, right, plowing a field. Two animals of unequal ability, uh, a pony and an ox or something like that, right? So it would be 
pretty uh, pretty hard for both those animals, right? So they're unequally uh, unequal in strength, unequal in ability, and uh, they're not compatible. And you're going to have a really really hard time uh, plowing a field. And now these rhetorical questions. Uh, you might think one would have been sufficient, maybe two, five. Okay, so we get the we get the importance of this. Now, a rhetorical question is part of the world, uh, the ancient world of uh, comes out of the ancient world of rhetoric, uh, the ability to persuade in speech. It's a tool. Um, parents, you ask your children once in a while a rhetorical question like, "What were you thinking?" Right. And, of course, you're not interested in their thoughts. You already know their thoughts. You're not interested in the child. Well, I, I actually, uh, no, I know what you were thinking. It was foolishness, right? So when you ask a rhetorical question, you're actually not asking for, now you can't do this with uh, first graders. <laughs> they don't understand. Um, and actually, as we become adults and perhaps in our high school years, we realize the teacher is not looking for an answer. The teacher is waxing eloquent with rhetorical flash and now begins to uh, use rhetorical questions. It means it's a device. It's a device, right? And uh, now they can include attitudes. <clears throat> what were you thinking? Right? And you put a little bite to it, a little sarcasm to it, right? A rhetorical question can be said actually very kindly, right, and gently. It can be. So there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. There's a lot that can, a lot of variation in a rhetorical question. Someone at the office says, uh, "When are we going to get a pay raise this year?" And that's a real question. The per other person re responds rhetorically, "Who knows? Can anyone figure out this company?" Right? Right? So some sarcasm there. Rhetorical question. Right? So these are strong statements, and they can feel Paul's statements, his questions. They can feel almost shocking to our modern-day sensibilities, right? I mean, look at look at these statements. I mean, what what relationship does does darkness have with light, or you know, the believer with unbelievers? And this is he just these stark contrasts are just like whoa. This is and of course we know people who are in these scenarios, um, and uh, boy, we think about the non-Christian. What do they think? Perhaps. They, you know, they, they become aware of, of, you know, of this view, boy, am I in darkness, you know, am I sold out to Satan, you know, and all these kinds of things. Now, I want to make sure we understand that this really is a statement about a, a way, a, a way of being. Let me just put it that way. It's a way of being. A, a Christian has entered into a new way of, of being. And, and I, uh, I don't know if you can remember back to your own conversion. Maybe you can't. Maybe it was a sort of a, a, a time when you were a young child and there was just sort of a, a process of a period of time that you remember you began to trust in Jesus. Well, we as elders would certainly love to hear a child say that they're now trusting in Jesus. They don't have to say, you know, July 3rd at 4 in the afternoon. They don't have to say that. Uh, but some of us, we, we, we do remember distinctly the moment when we... We're consciously aware that we're trusting Christ, and this is this is new. For me, it was at 19 years old, and I'd come out of this sort of quasi-new age, you know, thing, and uh, uh, read I read all kinds of esoteric philosophies and all kinds of all kinds of stuff, and who knows what I what I was, and 
what was I? Oh, California pagan. Let's call it that. So when I became a Christian, it was like, wow. It was, it was fantastic. It was life-altering. It was big. It was huge, substantive, historic, intellectual, philosophical, theological. And I didn't grasp everything at once, not at all. But it was cataclysmic. It was real. And I had someone who's related to me, who's a cynic, confront me with a great cynicism. He said, why do you believe in Jesus? Why don't you believe in Buddha? As it, the point was, they're all equally as, they're all equally as ridiculous. And for some reason, within about four weeks of knowing Christ, I said, well, <clears throat> Buddha's bones are still in the grave. That's what I said. Smart Alec. Well, I don't. So it was mind, it was mind altering. It was, I mean, just fantastic stuff. It was defensible. Bumped into cults at the college I was going to in San Diego. I had no idea how to distinguishing. Well, this is an Aryan. No, they, they, they deny the deity of Christ. What do I believe about the deity of Christ? All these various groups sharpened my biblical understanding, at least at some level, of talking to spurious groups claiming to be Christians. And so the idea that God found me before I was married and was able to find Mary Ann and to, to enjoy this relationship for 35 plus years. And yes, she is a brave woman. She told me the other day, she says, you know, you always have Christ to trust. How about that? You have Christ with you. So I want you to know that Christ is with us. And he's with me. And he has brought us into a new reality, a new way of being. And the, all these statements here, these five rhetorical questions, are a cry to the church that somewhere, not everyone in Corinth, but somewhere, enough Corinthians had a disregard for this. Just, just disregard. And they are strong statements of differentiation. You are not in accord with the old life, the old way of living. And this is really a key moment for every believer. Will we rely upon Scripture with this decision? On a scale of 1 to 10, how important are the scriptures to you, with 10 being vitally, absolutely important? And if you're not a 10, you're, you're going to wobble. Verse 14, let's take a look at these key, let's take a look at the key words used of Christians. Verse 14, righteousness. 
Then, verse 14, light. Verse 15, Christ. Then, believer. Then the final phrase, temple of God. You're part of the light. You're in the light. You're in union with, union with Christ. You have been given righteousness. And let me communicate clearly. We have no moral righteousness that is somehow attracted, has somehow tra- attracted us to God. We are moral failures before a righteous God. Our righteousness is conferred upon us. It is granted us. And that's vitally important. We are not in any sense morally superior to anyone. Before God, we radically failed in righteousness. Sheer grace has brought us to a knowledge of his righteousness that's through Christ. Now, these are two massive categories, light and darkness. The Apostle John used this theme many, many times. We have passed out of darkness. How do we know? Because we have have love for the brothers. Next, the term believer. That's, of course, packed with all kinds of implications. Now, I want to dwell on the next one, the temple of God, which is vitally important, as are the others. This truth, the believer, is the dwelling place of God himself. And upon this final rhetorical question, Paul rests his case. Leviticus 26, 11, God is saying, I, and this is what Paul quotes here in our text. Paul quotes Leviticus, which is in the, within the context, God has traveled with his people, Israel. He delivered them out of Egypt, and the surprise was he intends to stay with them. And he gathers them around Mount Sinai and he gives the Ten Commandments along with a bunch of other ones about civil life, meaning national life, and they are going to become his nation. And he has been traveling with them from Egypt and the miracles to the base of Sinai. He has now gathered them under their leader Moses, authorizing Moses as their leader And he separates them unto himself. He's beginning to reverse the curse, reverse the fall. He's bringing his people back into the land where he will dwell in their midst. Doesn't that remind you of Adam and Eve? That he's bringing them back into the land and now he's going to set up, uh, in a sense, a new garden for the world to see, for them to be the light to the nations And as he begins to separate them to himself, he calls them out of the nations. And he says to them that I will make my dwelling place among you and walk with you and I will be your God. Paul gives this to the Corinthians, a quotation from Leviticus 26. And then the beautiful fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant coming out of Genesis 17, 7, where God says those very same words, Oh, Abraham, I will be your God and the God to your children. And I will be your God and I will dwell among your people. And this 
promise of the Abrahamic covenant, it functions like a pipe underneath your Bible, and it continues along. And now it's repeated not only throughout the Old Testament, the idea that God would be in the midst of his people, but then it finally comes to a, a fulfillment in Christ where John picks up this imagery of Jesus is tabernacling among us. He's pitching his tent, his human flesh tent. He's pitching his tent among us. In a similar way, God pitched the tabernacle, a tent made of animal skins, and now he is traveling with his people. He is dwelling among them. If God is among the people, then they must be separate and must separate themselves. And here in our context, they separate themselves in the closest of human relationship, marriage. God is with us, and God, Paul drives home, God is dwelling among you. He is in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Stage one, uh, in this, the, 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 in a sense, the permanent dwelling of God. Stage one, Christ dwelling among us in his flesh. Stage two, Ephesians 3 picks this up. And this moment that Christ dwells among us, And then he ascends and the Spirit now comes upon believers. And now believers are sealed with the Spirit. Stage two, the Spirit now dwells in you. And you are not only in this age, but in the age to come permanently indwelled by God himself. Then stage three is captured for us in the dramatic scene in Revelation 21.3 where we by grace, receive the glorious crowning of the consummation of our redemption in the age to come. A voice declares at the end of the book of Revelation, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Abrahamic covenant. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. That's the image in the new heavens and the new earth. Stage one, Jesus. Stage two, you right now. Stage three, the new heavens and the new earth. God among his people. These rhetorical questions drive home the unique status of the believer. They have left, you have left, the world of darkness. This doesn't mean that unbelievers can't have virtue, right, in a public or civil civil level, right? Fantastic architects can be unbelievers, fantastic artists, maybe even fantastic husbands or wives. The practicality of it is not the point. The point is, who are you, Christian? Who are you? Now, what's fascinating about this is that in the ancient world, I think this is interesting. I'm reading a book on uh, evangelism in the ancient world. <laughs> and I get, uh, his name is Michael Green, he was an English, English writer. And he, he says, he, he recounts that in the ancient world, 
Uh, Egyptians had their gods. The Romans had their gods, right? We all know, right? Different gods, kind of different gods, right? And so Romans encounter the Egyptians and, oh, you've got a god for the, for the, for the sea. Ah, oh, we've got one of those. And, hey, you've got a god for the river. Yeah, we've got one. And god for fertility. Yeah, we've got one of those. How about the big god who made everything? Oh, yeah, we've got one of those too. And, right? Right? And so what they did was, in the ancient world, no one converted other people. Very, very rarely would somebody want to convert anyone else. You, you've heard the phrase, live and let live? That comes, that comes from 3,000 years ago. Live and let live. I, I don't want the Persian gods. You want the Persian gods? I don't want the Persian gods. I want my own. I like my Moabite gods or whatever, right? So we all have our, our own way of, and so we're, it's not now, it doesn't mean they didn't kill each other. <laughs> I want to make sure you know that. But there was a way of like when it comes to this, I don't know, the, the deities and all this stuff, they're kind of like leave it, leave it alone. Now the Jews were engaged in conversions of other people. And then of course the Christians come along and make this distinct. No, you can't you can't just you can't just marry anybody you want. You have to marry in Christ. Wow, what what might be behind this? Now there's many, many things, and this is a big subject, marriage. Now what God's doing here is he's re, re-establishing humanity. He's making human beings, in a sense, unified again through marriage. Marriage is the pillar of society. It's, marriage is very simple to the life of the church, which is a small society. But you think about, think about the woes of, of, of a country. Think about the problems of a country. Think about the problems of the inner city or the suburbs or wherever you are. The breakdown of the family, disagreements. It's a tragic thing of divorce within the church. So this is this is this is a this is a call, Christians, to invest in the rebuilding of humanity. And it happens around the kitchen table. In a peaceful, quiet, you don't have to be the most fantastic, amazing marriage, just a simple marriage plodding along, vanilla troubles. It's okay. You plot along, you have your kids around the table, and you repent and have faith and grow your kids in the Lord and watch what happens. This is the best thing, uh, this is the best thing we can do for the world. In the sense, we are against the world, aren't we? We're holding forth. While you're here, you're, you're, in a sense, you're protesting against the world. You are. You're saying enough. I must worship my God. But in a sense, you're for the world just by being here. You're holding forth standards and you're holding forth a way of living that's good and virtuous and right, redemptive. You're holding it forth. Now, I think what Paul's addressing here is the very reasoning process that infiltrates into the Christian mind. The live and let live. From the ancient world, you just simply, well, yeah, Jesus is my God. Oh, and you have Zeus and and the Greek gods. Well, we can make this happen. No. There's one God, one king. It's a universe, by the way. It's not a multiverse. It's a universe. It's a it's it's a one God triune mystery, but a a, a unity. See? We've got an, 
plenty of diversity. Meaning, diversity of thought, of theology, of church, of everything is, I think, falling apart. What's being held together? Now, as you think about our culture, I would encourage you not to bemoan it. Outside of Christ, well, it would be nice if everything was good, right? I would like that. But outside of Christ, anything is possible. Any definitions of marriage, any any kind of, you know, and the state, oh, don't get me started on the state. The state has usurped marriage from the church. Started with Ronald Reagan in the 1960s. What's this idea that you have to prove you have a, a case for divorce? No fault divorce. We're a fault-free society. And look where that has led us. And the state can come and just disrupt a marriage by fiat, by, by command, with, with no reasons at all. None. Now, I, as I've told you not to bemoan the culture, I just bemoan the culture. So we look outside and we go, wow, it's just chaotic. It's just chaotic. I read where there, there's a strange, unusual movement of people marrying their appliances. <laughs> no, I'm not, I knew that would get a laugh. I just, someone married their blender. I'm just, look, outside of, outside, we're looking for what? Normalcy, right? We're looking for, what? No, at least let's start in the church. Let, 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 let's take care of our house, right? And then maybe we might live such a life, maybe we might hold forth the light, maybe we hold forth a consistency of life that gets our neighbors curious about us. But boy, does the state want to control all these things. Now, the state historically used to have an, an, a vested interest in marriage. <clears throat> the reason was the state would... This is the day of orphans. You think of England years ago, right? When a marriage falls apart, what happens to the children? The state, marriage licenses, etc. The state had an interest in the quality of marriage, the kind of marriage. The... That's gone by the wayside. Do not be unequally yoked. To fall in love is everything. To fall in love makes one's life deeply meaningful. Before I became a Christian, that was really my only hope. I, I'm, in other words, the idea, I mean, how, how was love presented to you? Love is like the magic fix-all. I mean, it's going to, you know, you fall in love. <clears throat> Having a really cool car might help too. But falling in love was the fix-all. And I was gripped by a romantic imagination. And so what's happened is that we in the church can acquiesce and say, well, they're in love. They're in love, right? And it's sort of the privatization of faith. And that the meaning in someone's life now trumps everything else. It is the authority of the individual over the authority of Scripture and the church. And nothing could be more personal than one's choice. Listen to this. Listen, it feels out, I feel out, like it's outrageous up here. 
Nothing could be more personal than one's choice as to who to marry. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that just, uh, I mean, even uh, here, like, who are you to, right? It depends on how, how much it means that you've been transferred into the light. When you hear that, you've been, you're in the light. You've been rescued from the realm of death. Think about this. You found a Savior who bled for you and gave his life for you. You have the scriptures. You have a way to understand life, not perfectly. How deeply, when you hear those words, what does it do in you? What does it do in you? Is it compartmentalized? You have your Sunday thing. You have a few other things that are Christian, but you're somewhere else in some other compartment in your life. Oh, I want, I just ask that you would, you would move beyond this sense that my entitled, this place where I make choices is sort of sacrosanct, untouchable. No, God says I touch that with the, with the work of my son. I touch all these realms because I am restoring this humanity. What are the modern purposes of life? Anything you want. It's wide open. There are no categories except perhaps set some good goals. Have some happiness. May you, right? David Wells, in one of his books, he says, of the modern world, we are preoccupied with our own internal worlds. Some churches, faithful churches, denominations years ago, have made fateful decisions regarding marriage. Someone once said, he who marries the spirit of the age soon soon becomes its widower. And someone else said, he who sups with the devil should use a long spoon. Nothing could be more important than this decision. If you're not a believer here today, we want you to trust Christ. We want you to sense his love and his, his goodness you sense the condition that you're in, that you would turn from idols and trust in him, and we would love to talk to you about that. What is our, what is this, how does this all wrap up? Well, when you think about your, your salvation, there was one who was pure, and there was one who saved himself for God's purposes. And the Father led him to this hill where in a sense he married darkness he married our sin he became sin for us you see how did you escape the the gravitational pull of darkness someone came for you and was willing to to embrace the darkness, be treated as if he was an idolater. That you would be given a new life, the ability to make wise choices, 
and to be equally yoked. He was the one who was burdened, uh, unequally yoked on the cross, carrying a, a mighty burden. And let us worship our God and not our marriages, not our happiness, and not our choices. May we sense the deep goodness of what we've heard today. Let's pray. Lord, I have to confess that I am preoccupied, as has been said, with my own internal world. What an important passage this has been. How good for us. Lord, help us to hold forth for the world marriages that that are reflective of your redemption. Oh, Father, we love you and we thank you that you, you are kind to us, that you have not left us without clear instruction as a good father. And you've given us hope, Lord, in this passage. And Lord, I pray you'd give us joy as we say, oh, yes, Father, you've come for me in Jesus. Help me, O oh Lord, with these temptations. Lord, we thank you, Father, for this time and that you move us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so we give ourselves to you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.